Hi, this is Marisha for Love Your Creativity, and this is part one of a two-part interview I had with Al Okin, who I have watched in awe for many years, spellbinding audiences. He's a musician, a singer, a comedy uh, musical artist, and also a songwriter. His CV is, uh, I think the word is bonkers. He was the opening act for Wings in the 80s on their world tour, just him and his little guitar coming on stage at Wembley. And he's also done gigs constantly across the world, from Australia to most of Europe and Brazil. And of course, it's a really big hit in London, indeed, here. So there's a wealth of knowledge and information about understanding audiences and how to be an author on doing festivals. So this is why I've done this in two parts, because it was just too much great stuff for me to deprive you of. So hope you enjoy. I have a dream about her. She rings my bell. Gym class in half an hour. Oh, how she rocks. In kid and gym socks. She doesn't know who I am. She doesn't give a damn about me Cause I'm just a teenage dirtbag baby I'm just a teenage dirtbag baby Listen to Iron Maiden Maybe with me With me Love Your Creativity And today I'm interviewing Earl Okin Now Earl I've known well, for me, quite a long time, but uh, many, I've, many years. Many years. Many, I remember many. years ago you came to one of my to do one of my first cabaret shows, and then I've seen you obviously lots of time in Edinburgh's, and I know that you continue to keep you're always performing and travelling the world. It seems. I mean, you've even been to Brazil, haven't you? To do oh, several times. Yeah, because you are a add to the list. You're a very very funny comic. You, you you write some beautiful songs and sing them, some of which are quite straight, and lots of them are just... Your, your teenage uh, dirtbag one is just off the charts, I'll never forget it. <laughs> you also compose, and you've written a musical. Have I missed anything else? Yes, but you're going in the wrong direction. Okay, so first, fine. First and foremost, I'm a singer. Yes. Secondly, I'm a songwriter. And third and fourth, I'd be a guitarist and pianist, mm -hmm. because otherwise you can't write songs. I don't think I'm good enough to work as a proper guitarist or a proper pianist, but I play enough that I'm not embarrassed in front of proper musicians, like session <laughs> musicians. And last, I, 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 I'm funny, um, that was the thing I was interested in the least, but it's what earns me most of my income, because there's much more work for comedy in this country than there is for music, sadly, unless you happen to be a young rock band. And um, the comedy was came out of me doing folk clubs years ago, which was a sort of place where the residue of people who didn't have rock bands or groups of any sort could just perform. And it was called folk clubs because some of them did actually do folk clubs, but the rest of us were known as entertainers. There were two groups. There were the traddies, the people who really did folk music, and those of us who were entertainers. And we... Some of us were funny all the time. Sometimes you did straight songs that were funny when you spoke in between. And I learnt whatever comedy there is there, plus with the influence of my father who ran shows during World War Two and wrote com comedic sketches and songs and all sorts of things. So, And then I listened to people like Tom Lehrer, was a big influence, I'm sure. So that's how all that all came to be. But, but I never, ever have 
called myself a comedian. I do now be, just for the sake of simplicity, but yeah. really I'm on my uh, passport. It says entertainer. Oh, well, yeah, I'd agree You with know, that. Uh, yeah. that's what I am. I'm, I'm a sort of a modern-day Danny Kaye, if you want. Mm. You know, I sing, uh, I don't dance, but I, <laughs> then he didn't write songs. So I think that that's evens it up. So but that's what I am. I'm a sort of one-man variety show. <clears throat> yes, <clears throat> and I, I think it's probably easier to ask where you haven't been, because, I mean, I know you, you obviously still do lots of shows in Europe. Obviously, yes. you're, you're a very, I don't know, how many years have you been doing Edinburgh? Stopped in 2000, I did it for 18 years straight, and I did, I don't know, I may have been overtaken now, but at the time, I was the most performed artist there, because I'd done over 500 shows. Wow. Um, more impressive, though, is the mm. fact that I never lost money at Edinburgh. Well, that is, I, I tell you, <laughs> I've actually never made any, but I never lost oh. it. I oh. never lost money. Oh, I, I'm, well, I, I'm not a made, it's like I, I made, I made four grand on my last. Well, you did. That's fantastic. I learned. I learned what not to do and what to do. You know. Yes, exactly. So, what what not to do? Only a couple of. Don't spend any money that you really don't have to. You don't take a page, or quarter page advert in the Fringe magazine, especially now that they've segmentized it. When I started doing the Fringe, it was all in alphabetical order, and so people look leafing through might be looking for a comedy show, but then would see something else, and maybe oh, that was interesting. Whereas now, if they're looking for comedy shows, they'll only see comedy shows because it's all in separate sections. Mm. I think that was a very retrograde step. And they don't even guarantee your advert's going to be in the right section. So all the people looking for your comedy advert discover it's in the drama section, so nobody sees it. No, it's a waste of time, and it's got more and more expensive. You don't do anything. You have the minimal number of posters done, and you don't do them in glorious Technicolor because that costs a fortune. And everybody's got them, so they'll all look the same anyway. So you might as well have a black and white one. That actually is going to be more noticeable than the colour oh, ones. Great tip. Um, the real tip, I'll say it to the world because I don't do it anymore. I learnt this from my dentist because he used to run a <laughs> comedy show up there. And I, I saw what he was doing and I thought, I'm doing that. You have your information on your poster in big black letters like Daily Mail or whatever headlines or the Sun headline letters. Nothing subtle at all. This is Edinburgh. You don't want subtlety up there. Um, think of a silly title. I remember the one he had there was Whoops, Vicky, you split the packet. And I don't know what that means, but it sounded vaguely disgusting and you didn't even know why, but everybody came along to find out what it was. So you need a clever title of that nature. The fewer words, the better, because then the bigger the letters you can use in your poster. You use some image, which could be your mug, or it could be something which is going to make people look at it. I had a hundred left, so I know I only had a hundred posters up. And people said, oh, your posters are everywhere. And I thought, ding. Great. I, I paid for all my uh, leaflets and posters. I think I paid about 250 quid. A lot. Um... The, the leaflets are they glow as well so if they fall on the floor in the evening because people throw them away it lights up and you say oh, what's that I mean, just, it just costs nothing um, I was very lucky I had somewhere really cheap to stay I stayed there for 15 years that was the biggest yeah. find I ever had about my third year up there I was looking for a B&B to stay in and I went to this place I said oh this is in 85 before it all went mental 
So we've got a couple of rooms downstairs that we don't really use because we've never really decorated. It's all clean and everything, but it's not all done up. So there's an old wardrobe in there, an old bed, and it's hot and cold running water. But, you know, it's not... It's a massive room. I mean, bigger than the room we're in now. It's about 18 foot by 15. But in the corner, they also used it as a storage room. So there were stacks of chairs and a couple of tables. Did I care? No. No. Uh... <laughs> Also, it happened to be right next to the kitchen where they did their breakfast in the morning and they'd soon learned I wasn't going to make it by nine o'clock. And so I'd get a knock on the door and my name isn't Earl up there in Scotland. It's Errol. Oh, Errol, your breakfast. And they'd put it on a tray and that last one, they just, because it's right next to the kitchen, so it was no trouble for them. They just bunged it on the tray and they knock on the door, Errol, and sort of. Ten minutes later, sort of an arm would sort yeah, of exactly. floor level would sort of <laughs> feed its way out of the door and pull the train. Eighty-five pounds a week. Yeah, yeah, you did. Eighty-five yeah. pounds a week, remember, including brekkie. Yeah, and it was a brekkie. You know, you could have fed an yeah. the army. Last time I went up, I mean, I ended up spending. You know, the equivalent of a central London flat, don't you? I mean, you do. But you have to have somewhere. I, think I don't know because I never did. Oh well, I was paying. Yeah, think of it. Yeah, Two hundred and fifty quid a week. Sorted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accommodation. Yeah. You're, otherwise, what you do is you share a flat with some people. That's the only other way you can afford it. Oh, I just, I had to, the thing is when I've gone up, I've taken musicians up or whatever, and I just, I yeah. need somewhere decent to sleep, just because you know how exhausting oh, you are. Oh. And also, because, you know, if you're doing so many shows, as I know you do, you're running around, aren't you? And it was, it, I always drove up. I mean, all this thing about don't bring a car, I wouldn't have dreamt of doing it without my car. Yeah, I did that last time. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good. So talk to me, because mm. the thing is with you, are you're just a wealth of a wealth of knowledge about this. Uh-huh. Know you what really are. I'm, I might even, uh, I can see with chatting, I might have to put this into two separate podcasts and split it. Otherwise, we'll be going. Um, I've heard, I've seen you perform lots, obviously, and but you've only you, seen me doing comedy, haven't you? Yeah, I've never seen you do the straight stuff, but okay. I, I'm absolutely. Sh- but I have obviously. I mean, many, many years ago, I remember meeting you through Maria Davies. Oh, yeah. And, of course, I remember being here and you playing me some opera. So I know you've got a huge range of interests musically. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very well aware of that. And um, so I was just thinking about when I've ever seen you perform, you have this incredible connection with the audience and whatever age they are. And I just wonder, obviously, it's very strong material. Is this a learnt skill? Do you feel like you know how to do it now? Or is it just that you just were you just born to be an entertainer? Well, I was on stage when I was three, which might have helped. Wow. I mean, I so it just I feel at home on stage more than I do in real life. Mm. I mean, it's only as I get older that you build up enough confidence that you basically don't give a flying whatever. Uh, when you're in your twenties and thirties, or you've got acne, or you've got you know, and you come to the point and you say, "Listen, they're going to like me, or they're not going to like me," and you that's it. Um, beautiful women are not going to like me anymore because I'm too old, so I, that doesn't even come into play anymore. So it's, you know, there's no, no so because of that, I don't have to be particularly nice to them because they're not going to be interested anyway. So why waste my time thinking, why, how, how can I please them? Which in a way, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> but with audiences, funnily enough, it's, It's, I think I've compared it to, to, to being attracted to women. Some men just walk in the room and all the women go, wow, who's that? 
And they must develop, therefore, a confidence with women that says, you know, 90% of the women here are going to fancy me, therefore, I'm relaxed and don't have to put on play games because it's going to happen. Well, I'm not like that with women, but I am like that with audiences. And for a long, long time, I mean, listen, don't get me wrong, I've died on stage, everybody has. But it's rare. And because, therefore, <clears throat> I expect them to like me, just because they keep on liking me, that gives you, um, I think, an air of confidence when you walk on stage. So the, the audience in their mind somewhere is saying, right, he looks like he knows what he's doing, so we can relax and sit back and it's going to be okay. He's a pro. <clears throat> Does that make sense? Yes, And absolutely. so it's not so much what, what I'm doing, but I think that's what the connection is. It just goes, okay, you know. And the, other, the next thing is, I've never ever been, I mean, everybody's influenced by somebody. I'm sure I could name a load of in influences, but if you look at those people and compare them with me, we're not the same. It's, it's just gone into the mix. And I've always wanted to be Earl Oakin, the first Earl Oakin, not the second, I don't know, Frank Sinatra, um, whatever. Yeah, I, that's not been what I want. I, I'm not an impressionist. And I don't want to be, you know, Michael Bublé, they always talk of as the young Frank Sinatra or whatever. I don't want to be compared to anybody else. I want to be the first uh, Loki. When I was with Dick James in the 60s, he signed me. He'd um, already had a, another group, that, a group that he'd signed for publishing, and they were called The Beatles. <clears throat> and he kept calling me a second Paul McCartney. I said, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm your first Earl Oaken. And he'd laugh, you see. And he was a nice guy, and I liked him very much. But I, even at that age, it was me. As I, and I think that's important. You've got to have your own... Nobody's ever told me on stage, you know, you remind me a bit of... But they don't. In fact, when you're selling somebody who isn't like anybody else, it's very difficult. It's great once they see you because, oh, he's different. But when you're trying to sell yourself, yeah. you've got to sort of put yourself into a category so that people... It's no good me going online and, and being in a section for people looking for stand-up comedians because I'm not a stand-up comedian. Musical comedians are so few and far between that there's no real category. And even so, we're all so different from each other. Yeah, I mean, there's a cabaret section, isn't there, nowadays in these fringe brochures? And that's, that's, yeah, and that's, long's a piece of, yeah, it's very, yeah, it's very, very, it's very, yeah. So, we once used to use the, um, I'd say, the strange mixture between, what was it, we call it, the Victor Borger and something else. I mean, some, something to give them some, some idea of what I was, but it wasn't like anything, really. No. So, um, anyway, to go back to your question, I think, when you're different, when you look comfortable on stage, and I look sort of weird. I mean, I wear 19th century clothing here because my heroes were Puccini and Caruso rather than Elvis Presley. So, and one of the titles I used at Edinburgh, I was telling you, but you've got to have a title that makes people... One of the last titles I used was Musical Genius and Sex Symbol, and people came in to find out what that meant. And so ever since then, I've used that <laughs> as my introductory words. Nice. And then they say, it's like a double bluff, because yes. movement, sex symbol, and then they see me as, you know, 
in my dotage and in my 19th century clothing, sitting there, what is this going to be? And then the first thing I do is to look into the mic and go, hello, ladies. So the whole thing is playing with the expectations and turning them upside down the whole time. So um, um, I think all of that is something to do with what I call audience charm. And I always tell young performers they ain't got to develop their own audience charm. And it might be quite an aggressive, something like Ian Cognito, who's the last person in the world you think of as charming because he's aggressive and he's shouting at the audience and insulting them. But he does it with a twinkle and everybody knows that it's, as soon as he does it, that it's just an act. Or they usually do. Yeah. And and it's a, his form of audience charm. You've got to have that. If you haven't got the audience charm... They've got to like you, in other words. If they, if they don't like you, then if you do a joke which isn't particularly funny, it'll fall flat. Whereas if they like you, they'll say, oh, well, never mind that one. What's your next one? You see? And yes. that, you need that. But if you haven't got the charm, they'll go, oh, well, you lousy joke. Oh, what did you say, John? Oh, yeah. And they start talking or, oh, get off or whatever. You see? Mm. So they've got to like you. So I suppose that developed... In folk clubs, first of all, and you need it much, much tighter when you do comedy clubs because folk clubs are tolerant. The worst thing would happen in a folk club is they wouldn't clap very much. It happens to you in a comedy club, you're in serious trouble. So you get your words absolutely right and tight and, and, and lean, no unnecessary words. And then you try and deliver them as if you just thought of them. That's me anyway. I'm, remember, I'm not a stand-up. So I'm not thinking of new but that, jokes. But that's very. But that that advice is very stand-up advice, isn't it? Actually, mm. I mean, some comics take it to a real extreme. I mean, I think of Jack D, and there's not a single extraneous word in the lot of it. I almost find it a bit too tight. But but obviously mm. it's funny. But you can really see the the crafting of those jokes because there's no. So you well, are no, I mean, I mean no, I'll give you an example. There's one of my routines where I've got the words. Um, I used to say, I'm university trained, so I'll give you an example. See? No laugh, no laugh, no laugh. And I, in context, obviously, it's not yeah. funny now, but in context, it was, should have been funny. No laughs. And one day, just by chance, I said it back to front, and I said, um, I'll to give you examples, really, because I am university trained. Massive laugh. And I kept trying it each way, and every time I did it one way, it got a laugh. Each time it the other way, no laugh. So, it's a... Detail does that sometimes, but yes. you mustn't look ever as if you said the same words a hundred times, even if you have. You've always got to sometimes actually stumble over my words on purpose and sort of repeat them as if I'm, I'm not sure what to say next. Well, I do know what to say next, but it's got to look sort of like it's in the moment rather than reading off an auto cue, which is what you don't want. Yeah, I mean, it's a real, it's definitely something I always struggled with and work no doubt will always if I've got an absolute script in front of me like if I'm in a play or something then you stick whereas on stage doing that more comparing uh, I'm far more likely to have got veer off which I enjoy but yeah, then yeah. I'm very well aware that the really tight jokes are the ones that yes if you veer off like said Ross Noble but that's his style but mm. it is I think about finding your own style um, and what works remember I've never been an actor I'm not, I have no real interest in being an actor Words are my enemy. I just get so bored with words. 
And a lot of my humour doesn't come from my words anyway. I mean, you've seen me doing the song, My Room. Come to my room, put a smile on your lips. Come to my room, kind of loosen up your hips. Come to my room, baby, we're going to have us some fun. There's not a single funny line in there. But they're all falling about laughing. By yeah, me. it's the way you, yeah, absolutely, it's the way you deliver it. So, as I say, words are not really what I'm at. You know, in real life I make terrible puns and things there. But I don't do that on stage very much. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more... You're far more disciplined, it seemed. Well, it's, it's more... The comedy's about me rather than my material. That's the difference between a comedy writer and a comedian. Now, some people are both, such as Milton Jones, who I think is wonderful. Some people who are very well known, I don't think are very good comedians. They may be famous. They're very good writers. But I don't think they're funny in themselves at all. Um, and Jimmy Carr being a good example. Um, I look at him and I think, well, in fact, he opened for me in Holland before he got famous. Mm -hmm. And their grasp of English over there is good, but not good enough to understand wordplay that he was using. Right. And so because he isn't funny in himself, he was dying every night. Not in, not the sort of get off sort of dying, but a sort of, completely confused silence sort of dying where we're going is this a joke or we don't know it's yeah well of course internationally it's, it's a different trend i remember doing a comedy gig once and they ended up having i think half the room were international students and then there was a group of tourists from somewhere else and it was quite interesting to see which my singing material worked much better than the spoken because again you're and also language and people are used to hearing english sung as well which i think Mm, the only foreign audiences I have trouble with tend to be certain Americans who don't get anything subtle. Um, I had a song which was quite obviously about a certain Andrew Lloyd Webber, although I never mentioned his name, and I deny all knowledge of the fact. <laughs> uh, and everybody got the joke. The Germans, the Australians, the French, the British. The Americans thought I was singing about Paul McCartney. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, that's cultural difference. And another example, I was doing a, a comedy club in Bermuda and a lot of the people were coming from New Jersey, which apparently is the USA version of Essex. Yes, it is, apparently. <laughs> and uh, I actually heard somebody say to his wife on the way out, gee, honey, I don't know why he thought he was so sexy. <laughs> oh, God help us. Sorry. <laughs> and I just thought... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. But you know, um, that's what makes it. That's make, what makes the world so rich, isn't it? Really. So, when you come to, we were talking a bit earlier while you were making my coffee. Um, yes. <clears throat> great coffee, by the way. Is it right? Okay. Good, good. Um, song crafting. Mm. Do you feel there's a different process from when you are crafting, let's say, a straight song to a comedy song, or do you think you still put it through the same kind of technical? No, it's very different. A comedy song is not really about the song at all, it's about the words. I mean, it's possible to do a, a, a funny bit of music which is which changes key or the wrong time. Well, you, you can do that. But generally speaking, when you're talking about a comedy song, and there's a very, very big and old tradition in this country which people have forgotten. A hundred years ago, music hall, it was all about comedy songs. Um, but... You judge it not by the quality of music. It doesn't really matter what the music is. I mean, okay, you know, try and put a reasonable tune with it, but it's all about the words. And um, as you were saying yourself, there's something about the rhythm of the music which 
it's a bit like, you know, the, what do they say, the, the rule of three in stand-up, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, bang, you know. Well, with music you don't need that, because the music tells, da 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 Da, 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 and you know that's where the punchline's going to come, right? So it sort of helps you write your thing. And when you write a comedy song, what you tend to do is think of one joke or one funny um, taking off point from which... I'll give you an example. I wrote a parody of a song, wonderful old song called Love is Wonderful for the second time around. That song, just as wonderful, with both feet on the ground. Right? That's the old song. And I was sitting waiting for my case at some airport, and uh, it was taking, and for some unknown reason, I don't know, there's an unwritten law somewhere that says whenever I'm on a plane, <laughs> my case has to be lost. I don't know why, but that's where, so there I was. And I still hadn't seen my case, but there was one case that kept going round and round and round and round and round, and the words came into my head. I don't know why, it just does. There's that same green case the <laughs> second time around. Right, so I've now got... <laughs> Beautiful. I've now got the theme of the song, yeah. which is all about waiting for your luggage, okay? Now, once you've got your one joke, you can now play with it. Whereas in stand-up, you've got to think of another joke. With a song, you do variations on your one joke. So the song carries on. There's that same green case the second time around. I just hope my bags are in the lost and found. It's the second time my bags have gone astray. Last year I flew to France while all I owned went winging to Bombay. And, then, <laughs> and, and on it goes, you see? Yeah, so yeah, it's really, exactly. you need that original just idea, yeah. and then you think of more jokes to do with that, and, it's, and of course it's got a rhyme, and the, and the rhyme again helps your timing because you know that there's an A there and there's going to be something going to rhyme with it in a minute which is going to make me laugh and it's going to end with A so I'm waiting for that word that says A at the end and it turns out to be Bombay so um, if it being there's one where I said something the second verse something like check my lug luggage through da -da 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 -da, when it ends up in Timbuktu you, know, you see what I mean it, the, yes. the rhythm of the song helps you in that you've still got to think of it but it's a different form of humour and it's based uh, a lot on the rhythm of the... But it's... But what, I mean, that, that was somebody else's tune. I, I've written other ones with my own tunes. But it's the words with which you're judged when it comes to that sort of thing. Whereas with a melody, um, I don't think it matters a great deal. What, I mean, I fell in love first with Grand Opera. And it's all in Italian or French or Russian. I had no idea what they were singing about. I could tell it was a love duet, mm -hmm. or if somebody was very upset about something, or what you could see that from the music. And that's really all you needed to know. Yes. Whether there was saying, oh, my son, I've lost you forever, or oh, my daughter, where are you? It made very, very little difference to me. It was the music which... And, of course, as I got older, I realised that what was causing that effect on me was the use of harmony underneath the melody. And it has incredible international... It's, it's sort of in our genetics somewhere. You do that, and you, you know, the simple thing is minor keys are sad, major keys are happy. Well, it's like that, only there's a lot more sort of subtle things that you can do that play on people's emotions. So you start off with your chords, and by, you know, again, there are standard 
just as, you know, there's the Englishman, Irishman and Scotsman sort of standard format for a joke or a knock-knock joke, there are standard chord sequences. And what you do if you're any good as a songwriter, you, you take one of those, but you tweak it and you put in a chord that you're not expecting. So, oh yeah, dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum that sort of thing. And then you dum ba dum ba dum ba da 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 ba da 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 and it suddenly changed key. Well, that if you try and sing along with the tune, that'll make your tune go around a funny corner because it won't fit where it was going. Yeah. And uh, and that's sort of what songwriting is. Um, of course, that doesn't mean to say that by doing that, I immediately write a great song. But that's the process you go through. And once in every 25 goes, it's a bit like I always compare it to, um, imagine that you're looking at a conveyor belt of slag coming out of a gold mine. And it's all earth and rocks and so forth. And if you're very lucky, you'll see the occasional gleam. And your job is to grab hold of that gleaming bit before it falls into the bucket at the end. <laughs> and it's the same thing. You're playing, da, 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 and all of a sudden there's a little twist of notes. That's something. And before you forget it, you write it down because that's the kernel of your song. That's what songwriting is for me. Name me some standards. Oh, oh. I see tuning terribly. Yeah. Stay little Valentine, stay.